morning, everyone. My name is Gail Stone Koreski. I'm a partner at Sugarman Rogers, where I specialize in family law. Uh, today, I really want to welcome all our panel. We're here on a roundtable discussion on the Shack decision. Uh, this webinar is being co-sponsored by the Family Law Section and the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Section. And I want to make a special shout out to my co-chair, Kate Cook, also a partner Sugarman Rogers, for all the valuable help that she's giving me on the civil rights side to get this program underway. Um, I can't thank the panel enough. I'm going to be very brief and make the introductions. Uh, Rich Novich, I believe, is to my right. I don't know where he stands in the webinar, but he is a counsel with Todd and Weld, where he concentrates his practice in, the, in all aspects of domestic relations, probate litigation, and related appeals. He served as a staff attorney for the SJC and a judicial law clerk for the probate and family court, and he represented Mrs. Shack in the divorce proceedings. Um, we next have Juliana Zane, also from Todd and Weld. She focuses her practice on a range of issues, including asset division, child custody disputes, maternity actions, modifications, consent issues, and she was co-counsel with Rich Novich representing Mrs. Shack. Um, we have Jennifer Lomana, Lomana, no? I think I pronounced that correctly. She is a summa cum laude graduate at Northeastern University and Boston University School of Law, where she was a member of the Probate Law Journal. She spent the last 20 years in litigation in all areas of the law, um, especially um, domestic relations, where she represented Mr. Shack in this uh, case. We are also very lucky to have Ruth Berkman. Uh, um, she was the attorney who represented the ACLU who filed the amicus brief. Um, she specializes in free speech issues. Prior to joining the ACLU in 2017, she worked for 20 years for the Mass Law Reform Institute in Greater Boston Legal Services, where she worked to protect the rights of low-income families. Um, she's also a former Deputy General Counsel for the Senate Ways and Means and Assistant Attorney General. Um, we have also uh, Judge Ricky, who I have been friends with for many years. I appreciate her greatly for joining us. She was a member of the bench from 1993 to 2014. Many of us appeared before her. Before that, she practiced law from 1985 to 1993. And a new fact about Judge Ricky that I didn't know, she taught kindergarten for 10 years and now does ADR, arbitration, master's, case conciliation. And our last panelist, is Kathleen Rice, and I want to give her a special thank out. Jessica Greenwald O'Brien was scheduled to be on the panel, but unfortunately her dad passed away this week, and Katie was kind enough to jump in there. Uh, Katie has a master's and bachelor's degree in development from Boston College. She's a licensed as a mental health counselor um, since 1992. She began her career as a, a therapeutic daycare center abused and neglected families, uh, infants and toddlers, and she acted as the probation family service for Middlesex Probate and Family Court, where she was assigned to the Marlboro 
satellite we had judged to be, and she brings uh, just a huge plethora of background, having done 200 custody, parenting, guardianship investigations for the court. Um, and again, I thank you all for joining us. Um, we're going to have a really short, sort of very minimal backgrounds from each of the panelists so that you have some idea of what role they played in this litigation. And then we're going to open it up for a roundtable discussion, be a little different like a usual CLE. It's fascinating to hear everybody's, you know, uh, take on this decision and what it's going to mean going forward. So I'm going to turn it over for quickly to Juliana and Rich so they can tell us a little bit about their involvement as representing Mrs. Schneider in this case. Good morning, everyone. Um, so since February of 2018, I have been representing Mrs. Shack in the underlying divorce action um, that gave rise to the SJC discussion we're here to talk about. I thought it would be helpful to provide some brief background so everyone knows how the case reached the SJC and also some facts that we didn't necessarily have on our side that may have um, made the decision turn out differently. Um, so right in the beginning of the case, we filed a motion to vacate father from the former marital home due to a variety of issues, substance abuse, um, aggressive, erratic behavior, mother oftentimes locking herself and her child in the bathroom to escape father's volatile behavior, um, dealing with him pounding on the door um, until she could calm the situation down and, and make it safe for the child. Um, he would take brooms and bang against the ceiling when he felt their upstairs neighbors were being too loud, um, take glass bottles and throw them at the door because, again, thought they were being too loud, just a variety of that behavior. So as a result, um, in addition to granting the vacate order, the court awarded mother primary physical and legal custody of the child and afforded father limited supervised visitation with mother being the supervisor. After these orders, father's behavior continued to be um, erratic, including trying to evade mother during supervised parenting time, running with the child in and out of traffic, throwing metal objects at vehicles that were passing him. He then took to social media to post about the litigation, personal details about the party's lives, including conception issues they were having, um, and the like. Mother then filed another motion with the probate and family court requesting in part that the judge issue a non-disparagement order such that neither could post um, disparaging remarks about the litigation on social media. And I thought it would be interesting just to read uh, that portion of the order which stated that neither party shall disparage the other nor permit a third party to do so, especially within hearing range of the child, and neither party shall post any comments, solicitations, references, or other information regarding this litigation on social media. After the order issued, Father continued posting on social media. He went so far as to print out these posts and tape and staple them to trees and light poles around the Brookline community where mother and the child lived. 
Um, he also, on one instance, went to the synagogue where mother was very involved, took these postings he had printed out and threw them all over the synagogue, um, really distributing all of these details to a larger community. We then filed a complaint for contempt in the probate and family court alleging a violation of, of the order not to post disparaging remarks on social media. And as many of you know, the standard for a complaint for contempt is to prove there was a clear order and then to prove a clear and unequivocal disobedience of that order. So that's really what we were there to prove. We weren't there to defend the nature of the order, the non-disparagement order. Um, the judge um, hearing the complaint for contempt, it's clear in his findings that he did find this was a clear order that Mr. Shack was aware of and that he violated it. But that judge um, questioned the constitutionality of the order and reserved and reported uh, that a few questions up to the um, appellate division. And then we filed a motion for uh, direct appellate review to the Supreme Judicial Court. So just quickly, in the context of the SJC decision, it's important to look at the facts that we didn't have here and what we did had. We had a child who was very little, one to two years old throughout these proceedings, wasn't using social media. Um, and the posts by Mr. Shack, while they were embarrassing and harassing, were not that inflammatory. So you know, perhaps the decision would have turned out differently if we had an older child who did have access to social media, who had some, you know, therapeutic issues and was particularly susceptible to, to this type of disparagement between his parents. Rich, go ahead. Sure, just a few things. Um, so big picture folks, so what the case is about, and you'll hear a little bit more of this from um, colleagues Ruth and Jennifer, who have got infinitely more experience in this than I do, but reduced to its nub, this case is about prior restraint. If you would ask me what prior restraint meant before this case had begun, I would have said it was about being tied up in the past. Um, it's, we can all agree, I think most of, most of us who practice in the probate and family courts, we can agree that First Amendment and constitutional issues very rarely arise. They uh, hardly are discussed. And First Amendment in particular is, is uh, just very, very rarely addressed. Um, so that's in a nutshell what the case is about. Prior restraint is, uh, um, in summary, um, a, having a court order a uh, party or parties uh, to refrain from speaking before they speak. Uh, it's really a form of uh, censorship and what the uh, Supreme Court has said, if you read over the Shack decision, uh, extremely rare, um, extraordinary relief. It is... Um, just simply extraordinary. The SJC identified three times in, in the United States Supreme Court history where a prior restraint was authorized. Uh, certainly Shaq wasn't one of them. Uh, the SJC has identified three of its cases in the history of the SJC in which it addressed prior restraint. So this was on many levels a very extraordinary um, case. And as Juliana highlighted, the facts that we had were difficult to say the least. Um, it's important for all of you to know that what this case is about, um, but it's also what it isn't about. And what the case is, is not about and what it doesn't hold significantly 
is that going forward, all uh, non-disparagement clauses are unenforceable or unconstitutional. The SJC does not say that. So we are free as lawyers to negotiate non-disparagement clauses in our agreements. That is perfectly proper and permissible. What the case also doesn't hold is that existing or prior non-disparagement clauses in divorce agreements are unconstitutional. It does not say that. In fact, they are enforceable. The parameters of their enforceability may be in question, but what the SJC does not say is that the existing orders that you have are unenforceable. A case I'd like to bring to your attention was decided by the appeals court in 2016, which I cited in my brief. It's a case called Quinn versus Joni, G-J-O-N-I. And it was decided by the appeals court in 2016. And it specifically addressed um, similar orders uh, and state, stated in summary that even though the underlying order may violate First Amendment principles, it doesn't mean that you can't be um, uh, called to task on it. So if you have a, an existing order and someone is violating it, you may want to draw your attention to that case. The last thing that I would say what the SJC case uh, shack is not about and what it is not about is Though there is a heavy, very heavy presumption that the trial courts do not have the ability to issue these types of orders, uh, the SJC did not say that they were precluded from doing so on an inappropriate case. Our case just wasn't one of those cases. And as Juliana uh, articulated, we had very sparse, difficult facts. A one-year-old child who was not getting on the internet who I suspect barely understood the things that his parents were saying, let alone was harmed by them. So on a going forward basis, what it's important for all of us to know is that our case, Jack case was not the, um, the best case for us, but it doesn't mean that it is, uh, the trial court judges are precluded from entering these orders in the future. What you need to know is that these cases are heavily, as we all know, they're heavily fact driven. So it's incumbent upon us as lawyers to justify two things in particular, and I'm sure all of you, if you haven't read it, you'll read it if the circumstances uh, need, uh, but the two things that you need to highlight to a trial court judge are number one, that there is a serious threat of grave harm. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it is, there's gotta be something more than a one-year-old child who doesn't understand the words that his parents are using. And two, that the harm that could happen if the uh, non-disparagement order is not entered, is virtually certain to take place. So something that might happen into the future, not enough. Um, so what are the facts that you have to highlight to the judge, the very specific facts that you would have to highlight to the judge? The typical who, what, where, when, why. Um, as Juliana had highlighted, one of the things that you know, may arise into the future, which was not present here, was maybe we have a, a teenager who is has some psychiatric issues, maybe wetting the bed, maybe, you know, thoughts of suicide in and out of a hospital, um, you know, a therapist who thinks that, you know, these types of um, uh, discussions maybe, uh, you know, adversely affect their, the, not only their well-being, but their life. Um, so obviously those weren't present here, but they may be present down the road. Uh, I can't get into all of the specific permutations, the, the, the you know, the Imagination is boundless on what could happen, but it's important for all of us to know is that this case doesn't say that those orders are unconstitutional, period. We still have the opportunity to have that particular case come forward, ask the judge for that particular type of relief. Um, 
this case just wasn't it. So going forward, you may have it. Uh, I didn't, uh, but keep in mind that you still have the opportunity and the ability to ask for this relief. The last thing that I would leave you with, if you are asking a judge to uh, impose these types of non-disparagement orders, these so-called prior restraints, be very, very limited in the type of order that you're asking the judge to enter. It has to be narrowly tailored. Juliana identified what the order was in this case, and I think we could all agree, and I think I saw Ruth cringe when it was read, um, but the orders that were entered were enormously broad, enormously broad. It precluded the parties from, quote, disparaging the other party, not just in front of the child, but period. Can't disparage the other side to, to anybody. And, you know, if we had to pick a test case to challenge the First Amendment or challenge these types of orders under the First Amendment, uh, th this probably wasn't the best one to do it uh, with, uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's where we found ourselves. So if I, I'd ask you to keep in mind those three things when you read this case and as you start to practice in these types of areas. Rich, thank you so much. Um, the audience has asked us if we could try to mute ourselves if we're not talking. I guess they're having a lot of background noises. Um, so I'd ask anybody that is joining in on us to be mindful of that and to mute um, if you need to, or probably be better for the rest of the audience to do that. Uh, Jennifer, briefly tell us what uh, Mr. Shack had to say about all of this. Thank you. So Ronnie's case came about to me in May. So several months after he had been ordered to vacate the marital home, uh, lost custody of his child. So from Ronnie's perspective, who happens to be Canadian, by the way, his first experience in Massachusetts court was when he was served less than 24 hours before the hearing on the motion to vacate. So within the space of 24 hours, he appeared in court. He had been served the night before, had to leave his home. He requested a continuance and didn't get it. So he showed up the next morning after having vacated the home the night before without counsel. It resulted in him losing unfettered access to his child any decision-making authority as to his child, his home, and his ability to see his child unsupervised. So when we came around to May and the hearing on the motions for temporary orders, and now there was a request by the wife that he not be allowed to talk about what was happening to him, he was not in any way, shape, or form inclined to agree with that. And so I think in lots of our cases, we find ourselves in situations where you say to the, you say, you know, we agree we're not going to, you, you're not going to disparage the mom in front of the children and she's not going to do the same. And a lot of people are fine with that because they don't want that happening. Ronnie, his perspective is not that he was harassing or disparaging his wife on, online. What he actually did, and I think it's very important to, to reflect this, is that he published online the allegations his wife made against him in her court filings and then he denied them. That's what he did. And you'll see in, if you read the, the Justice Bud's decision, she highlights that the second judge in his more detailed order trying to address the crazy broad provisions of the first judge, that he lists seven dirty words to steal from George Carlin a bit. And I wanna be clear, none of those words were used by Mr. Shack. Mr. Shack didn't use any of those bad words in text, in person, or online. And there was a, some discussion about he was posting on light poles. That did not happen in the context of the contempt. That happened many months later. And even then, 
he wasn't disparaging his wife. What he was posting was when the wife started, in addition to supervising by herself, started bringing a male friend to help supervise the visit. And he felt even more oppressed by that, upset by it. And so he posted in the community saying, this is the guy who's showing up by visits. This is what's happening to me. So that's why we found ourselves in a situation where instead of sitting out in the hallway and working out in the, an arrangement about everybody's going to play nice, we're going to try to keep this as low-key as possible. I had somebody who felt very strongly that he had been restricted and hemmed in enough. And which is how we found ourselves with these, this really, from my perspective, not particularly titillating set of facts addressing a First Amendment issue before the AJC. And because these, issues, these orders are handed out pretty routinely. And the first judge that we went in front of, when I raised the First Amendment issue and said, I understand it's not, it's not great for people to do this, but he has a First Amendment right to do it. The response was, I think this is a no-brainer. And it isn't. So I, I think one of the things that happens in the context of probate and family law is, and in the juvenile court as well, these judges are in the trenches, right? There's a lot going on and you're not just dealing with someone's personal recognizance while they're waiting for their criminal trial. You're not dealing with businesses fighting with each other over business type questions. You're dealing with how people are gonna live their lives each day and how their children are going to navigate this system at the same time. And so judges, it's very easy, I think, for, for judges and litigants to get boxed into this idea of we can, we can micromanage everything about this family. When in the broader framework, you simply cannot. And so I, I was thrilled with the decision for a number of reasons, because I think that it's become very common in the probate and family court to come into court and raise issues that really should not be addressed in a courtroom. Simple things. If you've ever walked into a courtroom with a client who wants you to complain about the snacks that her ex is providing to the children during his parenting time, judges should not be writing menus for children. Judges should not be telling people what they can express online about judges. That was one of the big issues here, is my client, they wanted to restrain my client from being able to post on social media about litigation that is itself a matter of public record. And any, any one of you could go and pull the case and see every allegation the wife had made. So I think for me going forward, I'm going to be thinking of this case and reminding myself and my colleagues and my clients that we are doing this all in a broader framework. And the simple fact that your divorce is, has happened, your relationship is falling apart, doesn't mean you have ceded all control over your fundamental decision-making. And it seems that way in probate and family court a lot. And I think, you know, Rich was talking about how the harm has to be grave or certain. There are three different phrases that pop out for me in Justice Bud's decision that I'm very interested in chatting about today and, and hearing people's thoughts about how that will play out. She uses the phrases uh, grave or certain uh, in terms of the harm that must be out there, direct or substantial. Um, she, she mentions the fact that there should be exceptional circumstances. So what this really me ruling means from my perspective, it doesn't mean the court cannot punish people if their speech is resulting in harm. It doesn't mean that someone's crazy behavior can't be taken into account when making a custody determination, whether it's legal or physical. What it means is you can't preemptively restrict people's ability to complain about what's happening to them, express themselves, and 
if you're going to do that, the connection must be strong. Ruth, um, if you could give us a little insight as to the ACLU, why did the ACLU even get involved in this case? You know, you stay in your lane, we stay in our lane. I never get to talk to the ACLU people, you know? And so why did you do it? And can you also give us some background in terms of, I had to go back and look at my first year law school constitutional rights book because I haven't used the words prior restraints. I think Rich Novich agreed with that as well. So what is a prior restraint? Why did the ACL do this? And what about the safety of the children? How come they're, you know, why aren't they take, being taken into consideration? Thank you, Gail. There are a lot of questions there. I'll answer the first one first. Uh, we got involved in this case because we were very concerned about the breadth of the lower court's order and the argument, the breadth of the arguments that were being made in support of it and their implications more generally for freedom of speech and censorship by government officials of speech they simply find disparaging. I think it's really important to note that the definition of disparaging is unflattering. There are many things that are unflattering, yet true. And uh, if we, this case has potential to create a very dangerous slippery slope that uh, a judge could simply sit in the courtroom and say, well, I think what you're saying is unflattering, therefore I'm going to prevent you from being able to say it. And so um, maybe for the reasons you say that, and as Rich pointed out, these issues don't come up in probate and family court that often, but they should um, because the Constitution, both the federal and the state constitutional provisions for free speech apply everywhere, uh, including in probate and family court. Um, as to uh, the slippery slope we were concerned about here, it relates both to the very breadth of the word disparaging, an issue that the SJC did not rule on, although we asked them to, uh, statement is just too vague and overbroad um, uh, to withstand constitutional analysis. So in terms of Rich's advice going forward, I think people should also be very careful about using loose terms like that. Uh, disparaging can be truthful, it can be a statement of opinion, and uh, our constitutions protect those statements. Um, we were also concerned about even assuming that there's a compelling interest in preventing such statements uh, in uh, interest of the best interest of the child, that the connection here as to any actual harm or even very strong speculation of harm to this child, as opposed to some hypothetical child in a different case, was very attenuated. As pointed out, this was a baby. The statements were not made in his presence. Um, he wasn't gonna be able to even access or understand them for years to come. And if those facts are sufficient for a government official to bar someone from continuing to speak, then we're in a very dangerous area. And I just wanna point out sort of where the slippery slope here could go if as um, Mrs. Shack's counsel were arguing, uh, speech can be uh, restrained simply because we don't find it valuable. Um, like I pointed out, disparagement literally means unflattering statements. To say uh, 
many uh, so many statements that are both true and or statements of opinion may be unflattering but they're protected by the constitution for example what about saying the president is a liar that may well uh, i've heard several people say that i don't know if it's true but um which is tantamount to what mrs Shaq alleged Mr. Shaq or Mr. Shaq had said in terms of calling his wife an evil liar. Those statements probably are very harmful emotionally and upsetting to Baron Trump, who is a minor, or at least was at the beginning of his, I believe he still is. Um, and they could be very traumatizing for him. They could be very traumatizing for a child of a parent who strongly supports the president and gets very upset when he hears these things. Um, can But can the media or other of us on social media be barred from making those statements because it might have a harmful impact on a child. That's a very, like I said, very dangerous slippery slope. Um, so that's why we got involved and uh, we are definitely concerned about the interest of the child. Uh, the connection here was simply not made uh, as to harm to the child. I'd like to point out that our children also have the right to free speech protections as they grow up. And it's just as important that we protect those rights for them as to uh, protect them from statements that they probably will never read and aren't even that uh, dramatic, uh, even if they read them in the future. Prior restraint is, I think, Judge Butt, the SJC's uh, opinion is a very good tutorial and reminder of what a prior restraint is. Government order that uh, tells you in advance you can't say certain things. And it's one of the most egregious violations of the First Amendment in our state constitution. As the opinion points out, if somebody has really made a statement that is false and damaging, you can sue them for uh, libel or defamation, uh, and that will have a deterrent effect. Um, and that's the way those kinds of statements are supposed to be addressed. Um, of course, we understand that if there is a situation where in a child's presence who can understand what is being said, um, really uh, false and harmful statements are being made, there might be a case where an order uh, could be entered against those statements, but we think it would be very, very troubling if these orders continue to use the words like disparagement or requiring that people treat each other with kindness and respect. They need to be much more specific than that and narrow, much more narrow than that. Okay, thank you, Ruth. I, I think I'm gonna call on Kathleen Rice next because I think all of us who read this decision, <clears throat> my first reaction was, oh my, the children. And what does that do to the children? And also, if you could A, address that, Kathleen, and also address the idea that this was an infant or a toddler who might not have understood. And if there was an older child, what difference would that make? So when I first read it, I was concerned on a number of levels. I do understand it and I do understand the adults' rights, but I was very worried about children for the future. So although a one-year-old obviously can't read what's been printed anywhere, in the first year of life, we uh, children are learning to attach to someone and have secure attachment or insecure attachment. A secure attachment for a child is when they are able to trust 
the parent or caretaker that takes care of them. And it's very important to have a secure attachment to be able to go on and have, have a healthy emotional life, make relationships in the future. An insecure attachment causes anxiety in the child. It can cause health issues. It's really, it's very unhealthy for a child to have an insecure attachment with an adult. If in a divorce, and this is my opinion, that if in a divorce, the parents are fighting, even if the child doesn't read what they're saying or, or understand the words, they can feel the distress in the primary parent, the caretaking parent that they are trying to form a secure attachment with. The parent who is caring for an infant, if they are distracted, if they are depressed over something that's like this, that's going on with someone else that they feel is attacking them, that's uh, negatively affecting their status in the community, negatively affecting their ability to socialize with others, embarrassing them, that can cause a problem in parenting and that this primary parent could be distracted, could not be supplying the child with the, what they need to develop this secure attachment. So that's, I don't know that that happened, but that was one of the things that I was thinking about this ongoing conflict. Obviously there's been studies going on. Uh, um, uh, Judith Wallerstein did this long-term study about the effect of conflict with parents on children in the future. And I think what she found was a little over 40% of children had long-term problems from divorce and that those children, the, the children whose parents were nice to each other and um, did not disparage each other and that really allowed the child to have a healthy relationship with the other parent did best. The kids whose parents couldn't do that did poorly. They had problems with anxiety, they had some problems with substance abuse, they had problems um, in school, getting in trouble, those kind of things. So obviously there's long-term effects, but even if a child can't read something, it doesn't mean they're not affected. I have personally had a case where a parent, I was unsure if this mother posted it, but someone on her behalf posted some very negative things about the father. The child was in Catholic school, I think in second grade. Children in the school were no longer allowed to play with her. And her friend told her specifically, I can't play with you anymore because your, my mom and dad said that your mom and dad are bad and we can't play with you. The school was considering kicking the child out of school because they didn't want parents that fought all the time in the school. So this could affect the baby even getting into preschool if there are preschools in the community, which is generally what people use or in, within their you know, pretty close driving range. If people in the community have seen these flyers, heard things from other people, they may not want this child in their school. So that's another way that this could affect the child. I know Judge Ritchie knows this story that I have told about the effect that I, have, I used to coach when my kids were young. And I go to draft night and you pick the kids and they're first graders. And we go and we pick the kids and who you want on your team. And I was at a draft night with first graders and the man in charge got up in front of the class and said, you all know little Michael. And that his parents are going through a horrible divorce and fighting all the time. It may affect your team. So if nobody wants to pick Michael, I guess I'll take him. And I thought, how sad for this little boy, even in first grade, he's being affected by the public Things that, and I knew the parents, and they would come to everything and just trash the other parent. So there's even at a young age, there's not even the emotional aspects of, but the social aspects of it. Kids don't get invited to birthday parties. They don't get invited to play dates. So there's that as well. Kathy, hold that thought for a second. Judge Ricky, and actually, if the panel could all take off their mutes now, because I think we're going to try to start this round table, and it might be easier if we can all talk. Judge, if Juliana and Rich came to you and said, we want a disparaging order now for the father who and told everybody in the team 
that the child was in the process, parents were in a bad divorce, wasn't picked for the team, and those comments were hurtful. Under Shaq, would you issue an order? And after Shaq, I would issue an order because the child is at an age, and I totally agree with Katie Rice and what she just said. I understand that we just think, can, can the child hear it? It is the community the child is in. Kids aren't invited to parties. Kids aren't invited to sleepovers. Kids aren't picked for teams. We hear this in the courtroom all the time. It's not just the two parents that, that their conduct and their behavior uh, between the two of them, which sadly is egregious, but it is, um, but it's, it's the world the child has to go out into. They've got to go into schools. They've got to, you know, you don't want the teachers talking about the parents. You don't want the teach. you, you want your child to be able to go out with a clean slate and, and be able to flourish and to be able to grow. I think it's the wording of the orders that is so problematic. More often than not, non-disparagement orders come in a stipulation or an agreement. They're not as often written by courts in judgments. More often it comes in, I, I listen to Juliana and Rich's facts and it's, I understand that a judge made that order. More often it's that the parties put it in as boilerplate. I agree with Ruth clearly that what does disparaging mean? What, you know, what, it can be anything, it's too vague. I think one of the issues is the vagueness and the other is I agree it's a restraint on speech, but I do not think you have to wait until you actually see a harm as much as perhaps the SJC is suggesting. We have to make aspirational orders all the time in the probate and family court, or I used to. And that's, I think, when a court makes an order, it's aspirational. You're going to hope that the parties will not talk badly about each other, not trash each other, not speak to the grand, out, not just in front of the child, but they speak to the whole world. The parents speak to the whole world. The boyfriends, the girlfriends, the grandparents get into it. Everybody gets into it. So in this particular fact pattern that Katie is saying, yes, with the child being of that age, I would do an order, but the language of it would be very, very difficult of what to make it as specific as I needed to make it for that particular case. Then you go on to the enforceability. And I think that that's, that's the problem. How do you enforce something? We can't change behavior. We try. Probate and family court judges try. Family lawyers try all the time to try to coach and advise and write decisions and write stipulations where the parents, you speak to them about it, you speak to them out in the hall, probation speaks to them, family service speaks to them, the child psychologist speaks to them, but we just can't change behavior. And we keep trying to do that. So I think it just has to be tailored made. I don't think the problem is so much at the beginning of putting it in aspirationally. I think it's the enforceability that's, that's troubling. Ruth and Jennifer, how do you feel about the facts of what Kathleen has suggested? Is that sufficient harm, a proof of harm that might make a difference? What I was going to say, I would hope that people would rise up and speak out against a teacher who does, or coach, who did what they said, or a school who says that they're not going to roll someone because of their child. Uh, part of this is self-help. We cannot expect the courts to solve all of our social ills, and part of it is raising our own voices to say, do not do that. 
That is not right or fair. Um, and the same on social media. Stop reading it. If the, you know, uh, you can tear down those signs that are posted. You can block somebody's social media. You don't have to uh, glorify it by listening to it and then passing on and then say, okay, now we're going to ask a court to suppress some speech that may have led to this when there are a bunch of bad actors after that. So I think part of the problem is assuming that courts can fix all these things, as Jennifer said in her opening. And um, so that's, that's one set of questions. I also think we have to be very careful about entering these orders being entered, even if they're just aspirational. That creates a chill on free speech rights. That itself is a violation. Even if you don't enforce it, someone will feel uh, chilled in their exercise of being able to say, I, son, I need to tell you, I'm really sorry to say this, but your mother lied in those court papers. And I want you to know that what she said about me is not true. How is that particularly harmful to a child if it's said respectfully? Kathleen, can you answer that? It's very harmful to the child. So the child develops an inner thought about what their parents are. They, they have this attachment to both parents, say. And then one starts saying negative things about the other parent, which really makes the child question what their thoughts are about their parent. Was I right about this person? They also wonder if, if mom says this and dad says this, who's telling the truth? Are my parents not truthful people? When you think of young children and they depend on their parents and they trust their parents, and then suddenly the person that they love, say the mom is attacking the dad, this child loves their dad, thinks they're wonderful, and then mom is saying to dad, an example you just gave, your dad is a liar. That has to, it really is, but the child feels, the child recognizes that it's part of both parents. There are ways to say, if a, if a, so if, if mom lies about dad and dad goes to the child to let the child know that they, they didn't lie, they can just say to them, I know that you've heard about some of our disagreements, but mom and I don't see this on the same plane without attacking the other parent. It's the attacking the other parent that is problematic for the child who really loves both of them. Children can if they start to hear a really bad thing about one parent, they, they might think that they're bad as well. They might start thinking, well, geez, that's my mom. But am I that way? Am I bad too? It's really bad for children to hear their parents saying negative things about the other. If I can, if I can the question you would ask is the harm Kathleen had described about the community, there being community backlash because people are having an ugly divorce. That's exactly what I'm talking about when I say that's not the type of stuff I think the probate and family court should be getting involved in. Because we have some people down the street from us who have some extremely inflammatory racist signs on their door. Are we going to their barbecue? No, we are not. Is my daughter hanging out with their child? No, they are not. They're not getting a divorce, which means the probate and family court has nothing to say about the community response to these parents' behavior. And that's as it should be, because communities correct themselves. And that's what happens. There are people out there who are getting divorces who we all avoid, right? The mere fact that people are getting divorces, the idea that now the court, the government, and that's, I think we have to keep reminding ourselves of that, the government should step in and tell these people, your behavior is resulting in people not liking your child. That's something that happens every day. There are kids who aren't getting invited to play dates because their mom, you know, mommy gets drunk at every single, you know, school auction and says terrible things. We don't legislate that and we don't ask for court orders about that. 
And so that's, I think, one of the biggest things that I struggle with as a family law practitioner is from the simple, simplest little thing, which is if you don't ever get divorced, nobody can tell you you have to pay for your kid's college. But if you do, now we can. If you don't ever get divorced, no one can tell you what you and your husband can say to each other in front of your kids. But if you get divorced, now we have that authority. So that's what I get worried about is this idea that because a divorce is happening, now we need a court to address how this family is going to be perceived. Judges are not, respectfully, I, and I understand there's some disagreement here, I don't think probate and family court judges are the guardians of a family's reputation in order to protect children from the consequences of having parents who don't have as good manners as somebody else. Can, so, let me, let me, can I just address a couple of things? So I, I understand, I hear you, Jennifer, I hear you, Ruth. Um, what I'm struggling with, and I, I hear you're struggling, Jennifer, too, but what I'm struggling with is the, um, some of the comments about, well, I hope that people would rise up and act like adults, or, um, you know, it's not the judge's job to fix the community reputation of, of these folks. And to, to, to a degree, I agree with that. But you know, there, there's fantasy, and then there's the reality and the practical result of, of, of what we're talking about here, folks. And we're talking about, in my view, we're talking about best interests of children. And anytime folks are before a, a trial court, a probate court judge, it is the trial court judge's duty and responsibility to, to defend the, and, and seek to safeguard the child's best interests. So when we're all here talking about an adult world and protecting and safeguarding the adult's freedom of speech to say whatever the hell they want about the other in whatever forums and whatever uh, uh, areas that they want, it's the child that we have to look out for. It is, their, it is judges and our, our jobs as lawyers to advocate and advance those best interests. In case law in Massachusetts, beginning back with you know, uh, Prince versus Massachusetts way back in you know, the early 1900s, I think it was 1920, the job of the trial court judges is to do what they can to protect them, even if it, it, it results in some infringement of constitutional rights. That is, that is well established, in my view, in U.S. Supreme Court decisions and SJC court decisions. So, yes, we're, we're, not, going, we're not going to get involved in you know, parents' you know, disputes in the community. But once they step foot into that courtroom, it is our job. It is the judge's duty to do what they can in order to protect that. I think the issue with Shaq, one of the problems that I see in, the, in Shaq, is that it takes away the power or a degree of power of trial court judges to protect children. And it makes it more difficult for us as lawyers to do just that. And that's one of the issues that I see in the case. Judge Ricky, do you want to respond to that? I would expect that by time a family like this is in several times, right? It's not, this is going to be a high conflict family that we're going to see from age one to 18. I hope that's not true for this little boy. I think it's a boy. Um, but I fear that it's going to be a very long life for this child where the child is going to be raised by the court because the parents are unable to make decisions necessarily or abide by decisions. And so they're going to be in. I mean, probate and family court judges, I agree with Jennifer. They don't want to decide where a child wakes up on Christmas. Parents should decide where a child wakes up on Christmas. We can't, we should not be micromanaging, but they're in front of us and they have a child that is suffering, whether it's the coach not picking, whatever it is, we have a child that is suffering. And that is the first thing that goes through our head. 
when I say being aspirational, and I don't think that many of my former colleagues, sitting judges now, are going to be writing these clauses after Shaq, and maybe that's good and maybe that's bad. I don't know. The question from Gail was, would I, based on Shaq with a child of a little older age, put in a clause? I would put it in to be aspirational. Having said, I don't know what you can do about the enforceability. But when they are in front of me, like Rich just said, when they are in front of a sitting judge, not me, um, the judge has to address it. You've got, what do you, you're just not going to say, well, sorry, you all just don't know how to act nicely to each other, and we'll just let the child just continue to be harmed. You have to do something. You can't dismiss every single, maybe you have to dismiss some complaints for contempt. I think Judge Phelan did not make a, not being disrespectful at all, he's an excellent judge. He did not make a decision he wanted to hear from an upper court. He reported it up. I don't think that that's what Jennifer intended, or that's what, Jennifer, did you do the contempt? No, okay, I'm sorry. I don't think that's what parents at the contempt intended, that it was going to be reported up and that they had to pay for appellate lawyers and that they had to pay for an appeal process. I think they expected to come in, it would either get dismissed if dad prevailed or there would be something put in slapping dad's hands if mom prevailed, right? I mean, nobody expected there's going to be an appeal that goes to the SJC and oops, you've got to pay for appellate counsel and oops, you've got to pay for an for the, for the briefing, et cetera. But that's what happens. The judge decided that it was a novel question, sent it up and the appellate courts took it. So we have something which is good, but I think, I see these clauses being, I think it matters what is the proceeding in front of you. Is it a brand new 209C complaint or a complaint for divorce where there has not been harm shown yet, hopefully? <laughs> that from when the child is born or the parties file something, there's not harm yet? Or is it a contempt and a modification where you then are past how, what the parents have either agreed to, had been ordered to do, and the parents are not able to conduct themselves as adults in ways that don't harm their children. And I think that that is a different distinction. And I think if there had been counsel for the child appointed in this, and I know that's a little bit different, Jennifer, because in juvenile court, uh, children have counsel. And I think it would have been interesting had this gone up from the juvenile court, different from the probate and family court, where children aren't parties, where in the juvenile court they are parties. And I, I keep thinking about that distinction. You know, we have guardians at light and we have counsel for children in very, very, very few cases. But I think had it been postured differently, had it gone up differently, it might have come down with more of a best interest analysis that Rich is speaking of. And can you talk a little about any harm for children in high conflict parents as they go old, get older? You know, what are the signs that there might be some harm to these children in high conflicts? How does it affect the child in any? And I assume that we, for the sake of our discussions, can talk about these parents as high conflict parents. What studies have been done? if any. This is for Katie. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so I know that I mentioned Judith Wallstein. She did a longitudinal study started in the 70s that really tracked families and looked at how they did. Um, I don't have any of the names. There's other um, studies that have shown in the past that children who have high conflict, they can develop anxiety, they can develop problems. One of the big things is that if they're constantly seeing their parents' conflict, children, we learn everything that we know about relationships really from our parents. 
And so if children are seeing high conflict, unhealthy relationships, then they may go into unhealthy relationships in the future, have trouble resolving conflict with other people, get into bad relationships from an early age. Um, with high conflict comes a lot of um, anxiety and the physical, um, the physical reaction to anxiety, so the flight, fight or flight uh, response, that's constant for kids whose parents are constantly fighting, either whether they stay together and fighting or if they're separate and constantly fighting. And there are studies that show that they have caused health problems in children long-term from going ongoing conflict. Um, one of the things that can happen too, I know you hear a lot about alienation, but sometimes kids get to a point where they're just done. And, and even if the, you know, either of the parents are particularly bad for them or someone that the court might say they shouldn't see them, they just stop, they, they choose a side and they stop talking to one parent. And it's really hard to get them back into that relationship with that parent. Um, thank you, which leads me back to the room with Jennifer. Um, do you have any concerns about how this negative impact um, may affect the children without this disparaging comment. So, you know, they, they might suffer some emotional trauma. Um, they might have some negative impact. How do you feel that your decision has either helped or harmed, or are you concerned with any of the comments that Kathleen might have said, assuming that these non-disparaging uh, uh, orders do what they're asked to do, which is to try to diffuse the relationship. And what concerns do you have going forward that now the court may not be able to do anything about it? Jennifer, you got to unplug yourself. Unmute. So you wouldn't hear my background noise and then I forgot. Um, okay. And Ruth, you can unmute too so that you can both chime in. I think that the court can do things. So if you have a situation where a child is being directly exposed to the conflict, that's the type of situation that, that I think the court in Shack addressed. What I think is interesting, and it's, it's something that I've spent so much time thinking about, I probably overthought it at this point, but Just, Justice Budd says at the end of the decision, assuming for the sake of discussion that the Commonwealth's interest in protecting a child from such harm is sufficiently weighty, to justify a prior restraint. So she actually doesn't make a conclusion that the compelling interest of the best interest of the children is sufficiently weighty to ever justify a prior restraint. So, and I see Ruth nodding, so I mean, you're, you agree with me that that, she's not saying that there really is ever a situation where a prior restraint is possible. So I think we're always going to be coming at it from a post-conduct perspective. So for example, Timmy was not selected for a team because dad showed up at the, the, the team draft and behaved in this way. A judge can make a very specific order. Dad's not allowed to attend team selections anymore. Dad is not allowed to approach the child or his mother within 10 feet at a, at a sporting event. If dad cannot come without yelling, you war, right? If that's what's happening, and it's directly affecting the child, there are orders that could be put in place, right? Uh, but what you can't say is absent of showing that something like that has happened or is harming the child, um, you, you, you cannot put a limit on specific speculative events. 
but there's plenty of authority for the court now to do what I agree the court should be doing is when there's direct conflict and direct harm to the child, the court can, can and should still address that. I don't think Shaq prevents that in any way. Ruth, if you could address yeah. that. I want to ask one other question while you're addressing that because we have a lot of people in the audience that are just not pure family law practitioners. We hopefully have some business law practitioners in our midst as well. And one of the questions I had while you're answering, Jennifer, is what impact, if any, does the Shack decision have on non-disparagement clauses where they're used in the business arena? And I think you're the best person to answer that because I only know a little about family law, so. Did you ask me that? No, Rich, no. Oh. <laughs> I will. We'll let you respond. We just asked Ruth if she could respond yeah. first. Well, first of all, I want to respond. I see there are questions in the Q&A that go to uh, pointing out that uh, all the time, and this is consistent with what Rich said, the courts interfere with constitutional rights, like the right to raise your child that, get, it, get, that gets interfered with uh, in some of these decisions. And the real message of uh, this decision and the law that it applies is that the First Amendment is different. The value in our country on being able to express opinions and facts, particularly, but not only true facts, is one of the most protected things uh, under our constitutional structures. And so restricting words is different. Now that doesn't mean, I do not think that means that there could never be a time when words, as well as perhaps body language and co other conduct, are created such a situation in the home where it's clearly traumatizing for this child that an order perhaps could not be entered against that. But, um, and, and here, if the family were still together um, and the father continued to behave the way Juliana described at the beginning, certainly orders against behaving like that um, could be entered. But speech really is different because of the, the core values of it to our, our democracy. Um, so I just think that really requires thinking about. I also have been concerned that this order feel, felt much more like it was to protect the mother from embarrassment than to protect the child. And that is also very troubling. Now I take Katie's point about the secure attachment issues, but that's a really broad concept too. Lots of things can cause a parent to be very stressed out and upset, having gotten fired from a job, having an employer who says, says really demeaning things to her, uh, not having enough money, uh, having received an eviction notice, and some of that is part of the rough and tumble of life, which gets back to we, the courts can't, even if they wanted to, protect children from all of that. I think they can protect them against conduct, uh, particularly in their presence that, um, or possibly on social media that they're actually seeing that um, described, uh, but we just have to be really careful about suppressing speech, um, particularly when it seems like it's more about protecting the other parent than really protecting the child. If I could just jump in and respond to Ruth, um, 
I think the SJC, though, does recognize in certain circumstances this can be harmful, whether it's to the parents or to children, and they do lay a path and various other alternatives. Maybe it's not the probate and family court issuing a non-disparagement order, but it can be applying to the district court for a 258E harassment prevention order, which you know, ironically, in this case, we did do, but the judge didn't find three specific instances of harm in order to extend the harassment prevention order, or it's some sort of a slander or other type of, of lawsuit. And I think the practical reality that of that, unfortunately, is a lot of these litigants don't have access to funds to be proceeding in multiple different courts, multiple different actions, so they go to the court that they're already in front of to try to seek relief to protect both themselves and their children. Rich, did you want to add something? Um, so to, this is context. One, one just to respond to Ruth, but the uh, other was to respond to your question about how does this apply in business context. But um, what, what I said to the SJC, and maybe uh, Katie can comment on this, is um, if, uh, if someone hits a child on the head with a stick and it doesn't leave a bruise, is it still abusive? Right. The answer is, of course, it is. So uh, in my view, words are no different. Words can be abusive to a child. Now, I know you've, you know, you've got responses to that, Ruth and Jennifer and constitutional issues. I, I get it. But but again, I am coming at it from an entirely different perspective. That is the best interests of the child. We're in front of a judge. And, you know, these words are I think we could agree on a lot of these words and it, that are harmful, that are just harmful for a child to hear. And once they hear them, the cat is, the, 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 the horse has left the barn. And while I hear you that we have uh, potential remedies available to us, such as 250 ADs or, you know, defamation actions or whatever, unless we can do what we can to try to insulate the child from these hurtful words, that is going to last them an awful long time. So that's my first comment, uh, Gail. The second comment, I think there's one of the, uh, there's a question about how does this might, you know, how might this uh, decision impact um, NDAs or non-disparagement non uh, clauses in business context. And I think having done some research uh, in this area, you'll find, I think if you, if you, uh, if you uh, research it on Westlaw, you'll find that um, parties are free to restrict their First Amendment freedoms, not just in the divorce context, but in the business context as well. And there's a variety of articles that are out there written about it. I'm not going to pretend that I'm a business lawyer. I'm not. I'm a probate you know, litigator and a divorce litigator. So, um, but, I, but if you do research that, you'll find that, that there are articles and cases from around the country that would allow you to um, restrict, uh, business, in the business context, restrict your, your First Amendment freedoms. I just want to say I agree with that. Um, uh, and it, one question that might arise in those situations is given the power dynamic, is it a truly voluntary uh, waiver of free speech rights, but I think in most of those cases it would be when there's a mutual agreement in exchange for um, severance pay, et cetera, that that would be found to be vol a voluntary waiver. Uh, so I'm going to throw this out to, to everybody in the panel. Going forward, what should practitioners do? Because if somebody asks me now to sign a non-disparaging agreement, where I before this wouldn't have given it a thought, I would have signed it as part of a temporary order and a stipulation, would you do it now? What are protections gonna do going forward? Because I think all of us are somewhat concerned about the validity of those agreements. 
And what should practitioners now know or do going forward? I know that I won't be allowing clients to sign many. I, I think anytime you allow your client to sign something that otherwise the court doesn't have the authority to do, you're inviting a problem. You're inviting a contempt. You're inviting another court date that nobody wants to pay for and nobody really needs. So I, I think my perspective will be, I will continue as I always do and did in this case to encourage my clients to behave themselves and, and to try to get along with the other parent. And I will continue to stress the importance of not exposing your children to your parental problems. But I, I cannot accept in, unless it, if I can get someone else to do it because my client is on the receiving end, I, I, would, I might still ask for it, certainly. But absent a, absent a clear reason for it on behalf of, in my client's best interest, I, I don't see me writing that into any agreement going forward. <clears throat> Anybody want to respond to that? Juliana, Rich? Yeah, I think I would take the opposite approach, <laughs> Jennifer. I think when you're agreeing to something that will could be beneficial in the long run and, and open up less conflict, um, why invite either party to incite the other or, you know, say bad things or disparaging things about the other just because they may be able to? I think especially when children are involved, there's just no reason to open up that box. Well, I, do, you, do you see not having a non-disparagement clause as an invitation for people to behave badly? Because I don't see that. I see that as a right we all have right now. So I'm not inviting, I would not say to anybody, feel free to say whatever you want. But what I would say is um, that what you're inviting when you include a non-disparagement clause uh, if you and if you're and if the reason it's being asked for is because there's some concern that that behavior is out there, what you're inviting is a contempt. What you're inviting is more conflict. Mm -hmm. I, that's that's where I'm coming from in this. I don't think not having a non-disparagement clause invites people to to misbehave. So uh, I, I'm going to take a stab at this. Uh, it probably I may be in the minority. Um, I'm going to I'm going to guess that I am in the minority, but um, we represent you know husbands and wives every day. Jennifer, you do the same thing. Um, but at, at the core, I view what I do in these custody cases very much as, um, to, a, to a very large degree, advocating on and advocating for the child's best interests. And if I have a client who says to me, uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to agree to that non-disparagement just because I, I don't have to. And Jennifer, you're 100% right. Um, you know, the, the, the judge may not have the ability to enter those types of orders. But I'm going to tell my client, stop being a GD knucklehead and, and sign a non-disparagement agreement. Because if you are truly the parent that you represent to me that you are, you're a moron for not agreeing to this type of agreement. Your job as a parent is to not do that, have that type of discussion in front of your child bes besmirching the other parent. You shouldn't do it. And if you're telling me that you're this outstanding, fantastic parent, you're not going to do it anyway. So what is the harm to you, husband, wife, simply to agree to this language, agreeing not to do what you're telling me you're not going to do anyways? Put it in there. Stand up, put up or shut up. Put it in the agreement. And if we have to address it down the road, we'll address it down the road. But I personally, as, as a parent, I mean, we're, you know, look, I, I think that we have a duty to at least try to get parents to include these types of provisions in their agreement. And it's a huge red flag to me 
if someone were to say, you know, I, I don't want to agree to that because I don't have to. Well, okay, yeah, you don't have to. You don't have to do a whole lot of things. But are you thinking about yourself or are you thinking about your child? And that's a problem that I have as a, as a human being and, and, as a, and as a lawyer and practicing in front of judges like Judge Ricky every day. So I, I'm sure my thought is in the minority. That may not be truly advancing and advocating zealously on behalf of my client, but I think we have a duty to at least try to, to force that type of agreement. Kathleen, I'm going to address the next question to you. Unless somebody, somebody else want to respond to Rich? Yeah, if you don't mind. I, I just think, Rich, um, I take your point, but it gets back to what are they agreeing not to do? Disparagement is such a broad term. It would be one thing if we agree not to say uh, falsehoods that are likely or something, but disparaging can be a true comment. And what are we teaching our children about the values of being able to uh, deal with people respectfully? This would include respectful disagreement. No, so you're you're, you're is well So I think to, even to the extent that we're talking about people agreeing to these, which the court said is they weren't questioning, um, that we really need to think about the breadth of the language and also think about then when somebody tries to enforce that language that was voluntarily entered into, is it, are they seeking to apply it to things that would, again, violate free speech rights because of the lack of connection to the best interest of the child? Well, to, to, that, to that point, Ruth, it, it might be a true statement for a parent to say to their seven-year-old child, you know, your dad is a, a fall-down drunk alcoholic who's been arrested 15 times for OUIs. Uh, you know, he's been investigated by a variety of state agencies for X, Y, and Z, uh, all maybe very true statements. But how is that advance or how is that a benefit to the child as far as the child's own self-image or worth or his view of his parent? Um, I, I'm not, I'm not certainly yeah. not yeah. because I, I'm going to try to stay in my lane. I just, I don't, I don't see how that advances and benefits the child at all, even though it's true. The, the, the question is, how do we phrase the, the non-disparagement order to be as encompassing as possible, but as narrow as possible at the same time? And I, 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 I'm struggling with how to craft the language that will accomplish both of those ends. And it may be a fool's errand and an impossible task, but damn it, I think as lawyers, we got to try. Ironically, Rich, one of the questions that somebody's just asked us is can you suggest any language going forward that might work that would affect the parents to not do what we all don't want them to do and still you know protect their first amendment rights and protect the children are they mutually exclusive does anybody have any particular language that they think may work i mean i'm going to address ruth and, and jennifer because you you're the ones who have trouble with that because it violates the freedom of speech and i appreciate that but what kind of other language can you have so we can still protect the children? I have no problem dealing with what, what Rich was referring to, discussing with a client, you cannot be saying these things to your children because that is direct conduct involving the child. So I would not, for example, say to a client right now, one of the very common types of orders that judges issue are neither parent shall discuss the ongoing divorce litigation with the child. That's quite narrow. 
it, it allows the parent to post on Facebook saying, I hate my judge or, you know, uh, the, the system is corrupt or whatever they want to say, right? They can still do that. Um, but it, it, it addresses the specific harm that I want to be absolutely clear, I know is real. I am not suggesting at all that it is not harmful to children to see this. So I do think that within the confines of Shack and respecting the breadth of the First Amendment protections that we all have, you can address specific targeted conduct. And, but as Ruth says, it, it, it can't be non-disparagement. That can't be the word, right? Because it's, that's simply too broad. But you can say, for example, neither parent shall discuss uh, child support, the payment of child support. So you don't have kids coming back saying, dad says he pays you enough in child support. He's not buying me a baseball mitt. That's directly involving the child in the conflict you can have. I think that's very clear. It's a very specific type of language that you can identify. Um, neither parent shall, if there's, again, if, there's an, if dad has 15 OUIs, right? Um, neither parent, except in the context of perhaps, well, assuming that there's a, an ongoing substance abuse issue that's being treated clinically, you can, you can have parameters like that, that issues involving the other parent's substance abuse, mental health issues, uh, will only be addressed, the parents agree, will only be addressed in a particular context. I think there are protections out there, but they're going, they have to be, as you say, they have to be as broad as to protect as much as possible and as narrow as possible so you're not running afoul of these constitutional rights. I think, I, I agree with you. As lawyers, we have to think about this. We've got to work at it and we've got to come up with some language, but we have to, I think, continue to maintain this idea that the First Amendment isn't an afterthought when you're dealing with the best interests of the children. And maybe because I have, in addition to my divorce practice, 20 years of fighting against DCF. So that's this government actor. And then you add the court as well. I have very often been in a position where my position on behalf of my client is diametrically opposed to what is actually in the best interest of that child. But that's my job. And that's why there's child's counsel and a judge and DCF counsel, because it's not for me to say, judge, my client shouldn't have houseplants, but she wants custody, right? It, it, it's not for me to say that. It's for me to advocate for my client's best interests. And I think that's where in the probate and family court, it can get kind of blurred because as the judge points out, it's very rare for you to have separate counsel for the children. And so as the attorney for the husband, attorney for the wife, we're kind of blurring our lines a little bit. And my role is no longer just to advocate for the best interests of my client, but I've got to somehow come back, back off on that advocacy to make sure their kids are getting what they deserve. And that's, that's, that's a bit murky, I think. Ruth? I just wanted to quickly, um, I know everybody sort of thinks it's a foregone conclusion that hearing parents say anything that might be interpreted negatively about the other causes serious harm. But for instance, the discussion about a substance abuse problem. I was, I was raised by two very loving parents, one of whom had serious mental health issues. And the discussions that I was able to have with my other parent about how frustrating that was and how, uh, how disruptive it was to our life was very important to my development as a child. Now, some of those things, those discussions we have, my, non-ill parent 
under this order could have been seen as disparaging. You were talking to your child about the fact that your other the other parent has mental illness. That's a bad thing, but it's it's not necessarily. So again, I think it has to be really narrowly targeted to what really is harmful as opposed to allowing children and parents to have uh, a discussion um, about these issues that are going on within their family. I also think that there'll be times when a child will later, if all this is gagged, a child will later on say, why didn't you fight harder for me? You know, at the time, maybe you didn't like the dad, but you liked the mom. And then you come later to understand, oh, geez, that was all flipped around. And you say to the other one, why didn't you fight harder for me to have custody? Why didn't you talk to me about any of this at the time so I could understand what was going on? And I just don't think we can categorically say that those conversations are a bad thing to have. So I agree there are times when this stuff is really bad and there are probably things courts can do, but that we should be very careful about painting with nearly as broad a brush as both the order here and the discussions have indicated would be appropriate. Let me throw out some language to see if this is any better. <coughs> Excuse me. At all times, each of the parties shall refer to the other with kindness and respect, especially within hearing range of the child. Is that any better? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Well, particularly within hearing range isn't good enough. I think the child needs to, there needs to be clear evidence that the child will hear it. And I don't know, is it unkind to tell the truth that, uh, or is it disrespectful to say, now I was upset last night because your mother filed this new paper in the case and I may have overreacted, but I feel like what she said wasn't true and that upset me, but I shouldn't have gotten into that. I shouldn't have shown that to you and I apologize. That would be barred by that order. But what if there was an already order that said you can't discuss the ongoing case with a child? We all think that's okay. Wouldn't that well, yeah, yeah, I realize you all think that's okay. <laughs> I don't necessarily think that's okay. It's a matter of public record. and um, So I'm very worried about courts saying you can't discuss something that's already on the public record. But Okay. Um, let me turn this discussion back to Kathleen for a second. One of the things that the court pointed out was that you can't prevent the people from talking, but you should be telling the litigants that their language, including any disparaging comments, may affect their custody. How much, if you're doing a GL report, does non-disparagement come up? How would it affect the custody? And fear of losing custody, could that take the place of a disparagement, non-disparagement clause? Is that for me? Yeah. So, for me, there's a lot more than just saying negative things to change custody. So I'm, I'm hesitant to say just disparagement or any kind of negative talk should change custody. But if in my report that I could report on all these incidents where the disparagement, not disparagement, but negative, I agree with the disparagement, it's hard to use that word, but negative talk about the other parent, giving them too much information about the other parent, was happening, 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 and it was affecting the child, I might recommend in a report if the parent cannot control them, themselves, cannot um, discontinue the practice of including the child in the court proceedings, telling the child negative things about the other parent, I might write, well, that I, I would recommend that the court consider a different custody arrangement. 
that may, may mean a change in custody, but, or it may mean supervised visitation or something like that. In a lot, in the cases where I find that people are just so awful to each other in front of the child, I will write as a recommendation that they, they don't say negative things about each other to the child. That doesn't necessarily mean it can become an order, but because I want them to see that, that, that this is not good for their child. Would, as would you consider writing into a motion for a GAL that the GAL investigates the disparaging comments that either parent is making and have the GAL make that as part of the issues that the GAL is going to review? Would you change the GAL motions to include that in now? We throw that out to the three practitioners. Well, I think one of the things that I'm seeing more and more often is that something similar to that is happening in the context of parental alienation. So you'll get a judge's order that say, will say the guardian ad litem will specifically address the issue of parental alienation. So I think it's sort of happening, I don't know if you've seen it, Gail, in your practice, but I have seen that happening. And I have seen, so that's another thing that makes me nervous, is this whole idea that you know, parental alienation has become a very common response to someone saying, this parent was abusive. And the other parent responds, the reason my kid is afraid to see me is because their the other parent has filled their head with lies. So, and if you believe every client I've, I've had who's been accused of abuse that's come into my office, 100% of those cases are parental alienation cases. Um, and so that's what we're facing, right? Is you're, you're dealing with people who don't have a great deal of personal insight into what their own behavior is. Uh, they don't have, um, because they're, they're coming to us, they're already embroiled in this emotional situation. They're not able to take the step back and make these decisions. Uh, so I don't know that handing it off to a GAL to investigate is going to be much different than what we're doing already. Uh, but I don't know, I'd, I'd love to hear Judge Ricky's thoughts about that. I, we started and we're going to end with, right, we wish we could change behavior of people. We try, we try to be aspirational. We try to craft our words. I think disparaging is a huge word that is very inflammatory. I agree with Ruth 100%. I think Alzheimer's and dementia. I think autism. I think those are summary words instead of talking about facts. I think we have to be really careful about what facts Jennifer is alluding to saying, put in what is specific to this case. I absolutely agree. That's not what comes in. These people, these people, these litigants, I don't mean that disrespectfully in any way to the, to the litigants. The litigants come in, no matter how many times you have told them, they are sadly often, most often, fueled and thinking through rage and anger and often hate, years and years and years of hate, years of expense. They come in, not with all of you lawyers, by the way, right? They come in often with so many pro se's. You don't have Katie Rice in every case. Wouldn't that be lovely if we had Katie Rice to explain to the court and many of other Katie's colleagues, which do wonderful work in high conflict, to explain to the court how this kind of behavior, sometimes they just need to hear it, you know, sometimes when the parties hear it from an expert, but that's not what really comes into the court. What comes into the court is there is going to be, whether that clause is in there or not, right? Jennifer, you're absolutely right. Whether there is that clause or not, what is going to come in is 
mother saying, and not respectfully, how Ruth's family handled it, explaining in her family that one of the parents had some disabilities or some issues. And I am sure that was done with love and respect because look, we've got Ruth, right? And so it worked in hers. That's not what they're saying about mental illness, Ruth. That is not what they're saying. They're saying your parent is a blankety blank mental case, right? They're not saying it nicely and explaining to you what somebody's capabilities and, and disabilities are. They're not saying those words. They're saying disparaging words. And I, I, think, the, I think every word matters that we write, every word that a judge rights matters, but more importantly, what you write in your agreements or stipulations or your proposed judgments. So we have to tailor it a little better, but we cannot walk around saying, everybody can just say whatever they want nasty about the other parent. Rich's example, you know, your father has 12 DUIs, he's a drunk, da 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 da, da. That may be factually true, you are right, but it, it does have an impact and we've got to be really, really careful. And so, I don't think judges are gonna write them anymore if in judgments or in, or in temporary orders. I think that Shaq may, not, may have taught judges not to do that. I think parties are going to write them and I think it's, you're gonna to have to spend some time talking about the enforceability. I think that that's the next step. What, what interests me, I've never seen in a probate and family court decision where uh, a justice has come down and said, well, if you can't do this in the probate court, we've got some tort remedies. Go file something for defamation. Go file something for infliction of emotional distress. Go file something for harassment. I'm like, oh Lord, now we've got three courts. Now we've got superior court in the, in the family law, right, in our court, because you should, right? Now we've got district court. Like, I'm not, I, I think that those are very important remedies to think and talk about as we go forward. But I'm just thinking, oh my Lord, now we've got superior court judges and district court judges, and they're going to want to refer it back to the probate and family court because we have the most, the most information about the family. So I'm like, oh no, please, why was that paragraph? And it's a very well-written decision. I don't mean that against Justice Bud in any way. But we don't need to give these types of families any further suggestions on how to fight and how to have conflict, right? We're trying to, we're trying to be aspirational and help them. I really think that these clauses were put in to be aspirational and to say, Let's all try to understand that our words have impact upon our kids and not do it. I don't think they were put in to be punitive. I think they were put in to be aspirational. Maybe Ruth is absolutely right. That's not probate and family court judges' jobs to be aspirational, but, but we do, we try. We really try to deescalate all the time. And I, that's sadly all I really... Yeah, that's very... Uh, well taken, and I think there are ways to put in agreements that says it's aspirational and not an order, you know, if you want to do that, you know, maybe the problem maybe is that's the way you're right. and I think there are also, you know, as we've talked about, disparagement is so broad, it could be things that, um, you know, would violate the uh, harassment statute that uh, would constitute libel or defamation, um, those things are more specific and have been found to uh, comply with the First Amendment. So I think those are things worth exploring. So they put something, is there something to leave? Uh, two things, one before I ask the next question. Two is that we're getting around time to end this. 
And so if anybody in the audience has questions and answers, um, please you know, email them. We are looking at them. We're happy to answer any questions that you have. Right now, I don't have any in the queue, so this is a good time for people to start that. But Ruth, so should the clause be more like it is the hope of the parties that neither one will say something you know, derogatory or untruthful, or we hope they won't make any, we won't harass the other party, you know, a hope. Um, I'm not sure they can ever get a contempt against those because I'm not sure how clear and unequivocal that is, but would that be helpful? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two categories there and I don't purport to be an expert on this. I'm talking about things that are broadly described as disparaging, but are protected by the First Amendment, those things could be stated as they're aspirational and they would not be enforceable by contempt. I think there are possibilities for crafting additional provisions that say the parties shall not engage in uh, conduct slash speech that uh, would warrant an order under the criminal harassment statutes potentially or that constitute libel or defamation but then that would require and that would narrow down the scope of any enforcement to things that actually meet those exceptions to free speech protections and probably do the job in lots of the cases that's that's one of the things that i think is interesting about this decision as well that they sort of kicked it over to the harassment prevention order. And Juliana had mentioned that the reason the court did not find a harassment prevention order in this case is because she didn't find three specific instances. I disagree with that. I don't think that's what the judge said uh, at the harassment prevention hearing, which I handled for Mr. Shack. Uh, what, she, what she agreed with is that in the harassment prevention context, the First Amendment lives there too. And one of the things in order to get a harassment prevention order, in Massachusetts, on where this where speech is the harassing conduct complained of, the speech cannot it must rise to the level of true threats or fighting words. So disparagement is not a basis for a harassment prevention order. Conduct can be so running around town leafleting the synagogue, as Juliana described, bad. That's conduct that could be harassing. Um, you know, posting on on polls, that could be harassing. Although it comes back to what was the speech included on that on that poll posting? So I don't think that the harassment prevention running over to district court for harassment prevention order is going to resolve the, the non-disparagement problem because it's still there's that's again as Ruth said speech is different and it's important and so if you're going to start having punishments in place with potential criminal consequences as a as a contempt can have and an HPE can have if you're going to have that and it's going to be speech it has to be, the speech has to be so inflammatory, so directly harmful, which ties into that direct harm, that imminent harm, which is what's required for a prior restraint in the first place. So it sounded like a good solution. You can get, you can bring a claim for defamation. You can bring a harassment prevention order. I don't really think it's much of one. And then think about the poor probate and family court judge. It's got to write the parenting schedule with the harassment order, the 209 order, right? I mean, not, but really, I mean, we've got to work around all of these other systems because children need two parents, even if the child needs to be protected while they're seeing one of the two parents. But very, very few cases where one parent does not ever, ever, ever see the child. I can't remember, you know, I mean, 
except in termination cases, but not in the divorce or, or 209C uh, world. So every time that there's another order, it impacts the probate and family. I guess I'm just being very protective of my, my of the sitting judges, of the colleagues, because you still got to write something for this family. You've still got to make this go forward. This one-year-old has 17 more years. So if we're being aspirational or educative, Ruth, it's only because we're really trying to de-escalate. I really don't think it's anybody's intention to take away rights, any probate and family courts intention to take away somebody's free speech rights. I think you're just trying to find a solution for this family. Probate and family court's not a one and done. It's not a guilty, not guilty. It's not damages for the plaintiff or, or whatever, right? I mean, you, you raise these children. We raise these children along with the parents because they're in all the time. This, these high conflict families are in all the time. There was a question that says, any chance of separating the probate matters from the family matters in the probate and family court? I'm sure I understand the question, but any of the panel want to take a stab at that? Well, I have to say goodbye. I, 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 I don't understand the question. Let me say goodbye to everybody. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know what? Thank We've actually judge. run out of time right now. Anybody have questions, they can email me. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to be with us this morning. And um, we really, really, really appreciate Welcome it. to the Probate and Family Court, Ruth. We're going to look forward to seeing you. Thank you, Carol. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Take care.